So a doctor, an engineer, and a politician were standing around at a party. Yeah, that was how I decided to start this particular sermon. And they were arguing about which of their professions happened to be the oldest. Well boasted the doctor, without a physician, mankind could not have survived very long. So I'm sure that my profession is the oldest. No, disagreed the engineer. Before life began, there was complete chaos, and it took an engineer like me to create some semblance of order from this chaos. And about that time, the politician chirped up and said, well, who created all that chaos? (laughs) We have a manner of boasting as people. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, which is our focus verse for this morning, I believe is one of the clearest, most compelling, and succinct summaries of the Christian faith found anywhere in the Bible. Galatians 6.14. Here at the end of what is very likely Paul's first inspired epistle, that of course the letter to the Galatians, written most likely either immediately before or after the conclusion of Paul's first great missionary journey, just before Going up to Jerusalem around AD 49, Paul writing to a group of believers in a region of Galatia that Paul had planted churches there. You can read about that in Acts chapters 13 and 14 in particular. Here in this very pointed letter, with not a lot of niceties at the beginning of it, where Paul spends his ink fighting for the purity of the gospel of God, and of God's saving and sovereign grace, he boastfully states, but far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You may have never thought about that verse in terms of a summation of the Christian life, but it is a beautiful and fitting summation of our salvation. Beloved, today we are looking at three important distinctions, or perhaps three significant implications connected to our boast as believers, our boast as Christians in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The first and most immediate of which is really implicit in the text. And it is this, that all creatures, all creatures, by their very design, boast or glory in something. I think of Psalm 19, verse 1, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Even inanimate objects were made to praise Jesus, to praise God. Everybody boasts. Human beings are hardwired to worship, even when we weep. People were made for praise, and so what Paul is drilling in, and we'll unpack it together this morning, is that the heart of one's religion, what you or I believe makes us right or acceptable with Almighty God, as we see in this passage, is actually revealed by who or by what we boast in by who or by what we think makes acceptable, makes us acceptable to our God, whatever we define our God to be. 
Simply put, number one, all creatures by design glory or boast in something. But secondly, there's another important implication that, that flows out of this text, and it's namely that ruined creatures, ruined creatures as a consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve, boast in tragically the wrong things. Everybody boasts. But sin, the Bible tells us, has short-circuited man's capacity to praise and honor the Lord rightly. That is, spiritual death has invaded and infiltrated God's good world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and our entire ability to praise God rightly has been distorted and co-opted. In other words, our capacity for boasting has gone haywire. So that we have misdirected praise bouncing in all the wrong directions. Sin has literally hijacked the very throne room of our hearts. Consider just briefly Paul's words to the Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 and following. For although they, here referencing the sinful men and women, apart from the gospel of God's grace in Christ, although they knew God, that is, they knew by natural revelation something about God, that He exists, surely there was some designer and one who created order out of all this, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, Paul writes, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, people have misplaced their praise. We are glory thieves as sinful human beings. The human heart, both made by and for the Lord, on account of human sin, is now an idol factory, churning out idol after idol after idol. We boast in self. We boast in success. We boast in sex and in worldly pleasures. We boast in self-actualization. We boast in self-righteous religious works. We boast in all manner of things. And the Bible says that all such boasting is what? It is sin. Everybody boasts, point number one. But point number two is that because of sin, everybody naturally boasts in the wrong things or in the wrong places. But that graciously brings us to the third point. An ultimate conclusion coming out of Galatians 6.14 by way of introduction this morning. And that is that redeemed creatures, by God's amazing grace, now are able to boast exclusively in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Jesus. Notice that Paul does not say here in this text, But far be it from me that I should boast, period. He does not say that. For Paul understands, in accordance with many other places in the Scriptures, that man's essential design demands that man will boast. We are boasting creatures. It's the very nature of a creature to boast. I think of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, where the Bible says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And He has also put eternity into man's heart. In other words, there's something within us 
that makes us yearn for the transcendent, something that's beyond us, something that's worthy of our attention and worthy of our worship, something that's really true in a realm of falsehoods and lies. It's God himself. We're hardwired to worship him, but in view of sin, we are misorienting with our, uh, our praise. We worship all sorts of other things. Neither does Paul simply say here, but far be it from me to boast in my own religious effort. And if anybody could have said that, Paul would have been the man to say that. Paul had a tremendous religious background and resume. But he doesn't say, but far be it from me to boast about how much I've praised God or how much I've worshipped God. He doesn't say that. Or even about to boast in my great knowledge of the truth of Scripture. Just imagine how Paul has, has forgotten more about the Bible than I will ever learn. But he doesn't say that, that I'm boasting in my knowledge about God. He doesn't say that, but many of us say that. Nor does Paul boast in his personal experience of Christ Remember when, G, uh, when Paul says that he had a, a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, he very well could have said that here to the Galatians, writing maybe, again, first in his uh, apostolic letters, saying, hey, guys, I've got something to boast about. I saw the risen Jesus, but he doesn't say that. Rather, in contradistinction to the Judaizers, and we're going to explain who they are in just a few moments, who had crept into the city and regions of Galatia and these churches and had contaminated or begun to contaminate the purity of the gospel of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. Paul simply says, but far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I call this the cross clause. The cross clause. It is the right place of boasting for every believer in grace. We have a cross clause. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 17 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We will boast. The question is, where will we boast? By God's grace, All of the grounds of our boasting is now resting on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not our own addition or works added to it. The biblical gospel of saving faith in the Lord Jesus reorients then our formerly ruinous praise to what is now a sweet new song of salvation through God's divine mercy and not our own merit or works. We were made to boast But sin has bent our boast. However, faith in Christ redeems our boast to the praise of God and the good of his people. So today's big idea is simply this, that you and I as Christians this morning must never boast in anything besides what God in Christ enables us and empowers us to boast in by grace. Let me say that again. We as Christians must never boast in anything other than what God in Christ enables us and empowers us to do by His lavish grace. I want to ask you as we begin together this morning, who or what are you really boasting in of late? Now be careful and remember our first premise this morning, Galatians 6.14, there are no non-boasters. You might say, well, speak for yourself, Pastor Dan, I'm I'm not a boaster. 
Everybody worships. Everybody boasts in something. It's how you and I were made by God. We are hardwired to worship. Whatever dominates or preoccupies our attention or our affections actually controls the levers of our hearts and reveals the objects of our boast. Consider for a brief moment the many objects of man's boasting and glorying in our current culture today. People boast in all manner of distorted sexual identities. Again, just watch TV, go online, and you will see all manner of shocking perversion and distortions of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that God says, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. So people boast in all sorts of, I know better things pertaining to sexual identity or gender. People boast in their success professionally. How much measuring and comparing uh, do you find at uh, the holiday table or perhaps uh, at when there's a neighborhood gathering? Uh, oh, how's your job going? How's, how's your career going? And there's all sorts of measuring, which is really a form of boasting that we have uh, among people. People boast in their family stability. Uh, children uh, who believe, children who are doing well and staying out of jail, whatever it might be, people boast in all manner of family stability. Or perhaps people boast in their income, people boast in their education level, people boast in their favorite sports teams, but we're not going to linger on that point this morning. People even boast in their religious affiliation or where they go to church, the point is there is no shortage of places where we boast as people because we were made to boast. But something has broken our boasting. Just look at the extent to which social media platforms such as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and others have grown over the last 15 years. If I think it, I must share it because the world is desperately waiting to know what I think and what I've done. Human beings love to brag and boast. We are by nature performative creatures. In other words, well, let me come back to this point. We've even coined special terms in our culture to coalesce or organize around others who identify with us or who share opposing beliefs from us so that we can ridicule and poke at them. I call these the isms of cultural identity. The isms of cultural identity, and there are numerous ones. This is not an exhaustive list. For example, moralism. So um, those that believe you do the certain things, and maybe God approves you if there's a God at all, but these behaviors are approved behaviors. These behaviors are unapproved behaviors, and so you gather around that. Conservatism, liberalism, relativism, wokeism. Activism, legalism, nationalism, atheism, naturalism, or creationism. There are all sorts of isms that we have invented or organized around that are really fundamentally identity markers. They help us find our people, in a sense. Each and every one of these isms, though, declare a value on something and draws a line of distinction or separation from others who don't share how you view these same priorities. 
I call them the borders of our boasting. I think you know where we might land as a congregation on some of these, though I trust that none of these is our ultimate boast because it is, they are inadequate and insufficient and some of them altogether unhelpful. In Paul's context, which again is the first century Judaism within the larger context of the Roman Empire, again in the first century, and particularly in the context of the book of Galatians, it wasn't another ism, but rather it was an Iser that came into fierce conflict with the gospel of God's grace in Christ. These were the Judaizers. Not just Judaism, but a faction of those who were Jews, called the Judaizers. Understand that Paul wrote Galatians, by and large, to address a sort of identity politics of a group of Christ-plus adjutants, or Christ-plus instigators called the Judaizers, a group of people who loved to harass places where Paul had visited and preached. Fundamentally, the Judaizers believed that, G- that, be- that Jesus' death was important. They did not discount the importance of Jesus' death and resurrection. They might have even said that it was essential. However, they insisted on the Jewish work of circumcision uh, for, for one to really and truly gain God's ultimate approval. That's why I call them a Christ-plus faction. Cross plus circumcision is one way to understand what the Judaizers preached. Now, John Stott, a contemporary commentator, elaborates saying, the Galatian converts who had received the gospel of grace from Paul were now turning away to another gospel, that is to a gospel of works. They did not deny that one must believe in Jesus for salvation. However, they stressed that one that is, a Gentile in particular, must be circumcised and keep the law as well. In other words, you must let Moses finish what Jesus Christ has started. Or rather, you must finish yourself by your own obedience to the law, what Christ alone has done. You see then that the Judaizers preached a Jesus plus faith. The Judaizers believed that in order for Gentiles to get to Jesus, they had to come through Judaism. Before Gentiles could be accepted by Christ, you had to pass through the grid or the framework of Judaism. Theirs was a gospel plus, a Jesus plus boast. Now remember some of our premises this morning and our big idea which says, as Bible-believing Christians, we must never boast in anything other than the cross of Christ which empowers us and enables us to see and behold the beauty of God and follow Him in faith. I want to illustrate just very quickly the basic problem with this sort of thinking that the Judaizers espoused with the following syllogism up on the screen. Imagine, for atheism, you have nothing, no God, plus something, I'm God, my religious works, equals atheism. That's one way of understanding what atheism espouses. Secondly, you might find uh, religious systems apart from Christianity suggest belief in something, or perhaps belief even in Jesus, plus something, meaning my own good works. That's a good example of what the Judaizers were espousing. 
But both of those are clearly not what Christianity and and Bible-believing Christians teach. Rather, Jesus, that is, faith in God's provision of atonement, plus nothing else for the basis of our salvation. Jesus plus nothing, there you have a picture of grace. Do you understand that? Now be careful here. This is a bit, it's truth, but it's treacherous. Because immediately somebody might want to rush to what's called antinomianism and says, well, I've got Jesus. It doesn't matter now what I do. That's not true biblical faith. Here's the caveat. This is not a message. Today's not a message about the fruit of faith, but rather about the foundation of faith. It is, uh, is it Jesus plus or is it Jesus alone that we are saved? Solus Christus. Christ alone, that is what we believe, Christ alone. Not Christ plus my getting it right, my good works. That's not faith, that's religion, that's self-righteousness. And I think this is very much embedded in what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 6. Paul says, either we can live for the glory of God by faith alone in the work of Christ Or we can live for the praise of men by our own good deeds and religious activities or self-sufficiency. But you have to make a choice. Either we can boast in Christ's perfect righteousness at Calvary, or we can boast in our own religious efforts, or the fact that we don't need either any divine help at all. We're good to go on our own. We don't need God in our life, and many choose foolishly that position. Which do you think makes you reconciled to God? Is it Jesus plus nothing or Jesus plus your help? It's Jesus plus nothing. The dust had hardly settled there in Galatia after Paul's ride out of town before these gospel plus Judaizers came slinking in to the communities causing a spiritual ruckus. Paul had heard about these false teachers and quickly fires off the letter to the Galatians. He says bluntly in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not, mind you, that there is another gospel, But there are some who trouble you and want to distort, you see that word, distort the gospel of Christ. Paul doesn't waste any time, and he certainly doesn't mince any words. I can't believe what you're saying and what you're believing. Then in chapter 2, Paul gets to the real heart of the gospel of grace, as he says in Galatians 2.15, For we ourselves are Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How is a person justified, friends? Is it by works of the law or is it by faith in Christ alone? The answer is is by faith alone in Christ. If that is discordant or not consistent with with what you think, we want to talk with you. We want to help you understand from the Scriptures that there is no other way of salvation besides the way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. 
Then in chapter 3, Paul really seems to let his readers have it where he says in Galatians 3.1, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Not that you were there when he was crucified, but in my preaching, you saw him presented as crucified through my word pictures of the gospel. Paul says, you yourselves have listened to me preach time and again of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Who then now has cast a spell over you? such that you now believe in some self-righteous living. Have you not gone mad? Paul could not believe what he was hearing. He goes on in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 to say, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not add religious rule-keeping as a prerequisite to gospel faith and grace. Look, verse 2 says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, again, he's really speaking to the Gentiles, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Be careful what you're listening to and who's teaching you, because some troublemakers have trotted in. The fact of the matter is that all throughout the letter of Galatians, Paul had dealt with one all-important, all-encompassing question, and it's simply the question this morning, where, friend, is your boast? Who are you boasting in, and what are you boasting in? Is it in your flesh, meaning circumcision in this context, or is it in faith? For us, it is the cross. Is it your religious observances, your circumcision, your Sabbath observances, your dietary restrictions, all of the religious rule-keeping that was contemporary in Paul's day, or is it the gospel of God's free grace in Christ as displayed in the crosswork of Christ? Everybody boasts. The question is, where is our boast? Where do we glory in? Even here at the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians that Jim read for us a bit ago, the apostle takes the pen from his amanuensis, which is a fancy term for his secretary, and he writes boldly in verse 11 of Galatians 6, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Just stop for a moment quickly and note that it was commonplace in ancient times for uh, someone to write through a secretary. They would dictate uh, the words of a letter, and someone else would write them down. And we believe that this was the case for Paul in many of his letters. But here he takes the pen from whoever it was. We don't know who wrote down the letter of Galatians. Some suggest Paul wrote it himself. And he says, look at the large letters. Consider, again, just sort of parenthetically, Romans sixteen twelve tells us of a man named Tertius. Let me ask you, who wrote Romans. Well, the obvious answer is that Paul wrote Romans, but Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Just to illustrate the point of why Paul is saying this in Galatians 6.11. But the point is, or the question might be, why did Paul write with such large letters? Two suggestions I offer to you. On the one hand, it could be for bold emphasis. You know, we have bold and we have italics and we have all sorts of ways of bringing attention and underscoring or highlighting things today. Paul is writing with large uncial letters here to emphasize perhaps the seriousness of what he is communicating. Or, or maybe and or, who knows, 
He is pointing out, uh, or at least um, helping us to see his own poor eyesight. He mentions his own infirmity of eyes in Galatians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that they were patient and endured with him in a, in a kind way. But again, the point here, going to verse 12, is Paul says, it is those who want to make a good showing of you in the flesh. That is, they want to boast about you who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Well, there it is. There's something important and telling. We want to stop here for just a moment. In a pluralistic society as the Roman Empire was, Judaism, which again is a monotheistic religion, had been granted a state-sanctioned status or approval. You could be... Uh, a Jewish person. You could subscribe to Judaism and not uh, be in any imminent threat from the Roman government, from the state government. That is, the Jews had a tenuous relationship with Rome, clearly we understand from the first century, but their religion wasn't outlawed. However, Christianity, which proclaimed not Caesar is Lord, but Christ is Lord, Curios. Jesus, Christ is Lord, even though it taught the followers of Jesus to be submissive to civil governments and leaders. By living upright, quiet, and godly lives, go read 1 Timothy chapter 2 and other places. 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4 allude to this. Christianity then, we know, eventually came to be under great persecution, both by the Jews and by the Romans. And I think that's significant when we read what we read in verse 12. See, the Judaizers were not just braggarts in the flesh, they were cowards of the flesh. They insisted on the pain of circumcision so that they would avoid the pain of persecution by identifying with this Christian sect called the Way. That, I believe, is what is meant by Paul in verse 12 when he says, in order that they might not be persecuted, again, at that time, by the Jews for the cross of Christ. Not only were the Judaizers braggarts and cowards, they were also con artists and they were clearly hypocrites. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. What a double standard. Such haughty, horrid, Hollow and hypocritical boasting stripped the glory right out of the gospel of grace in Christ. If my salvation is based upon my own good works or religious rule keeping, then I get to lay claim to at least a portion of the glory or the credit for my redemption. I get to have the glory with Christ himself. Paul says, God forbid. Here's the real twist. We get to share in his glory, but only by faith not by religious works. Jesus didn't die to make your salvation or mine possible. He died to make it certain. He died to make it secure. As Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, that is the word of the cross, is the power of God. He continues in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 1 saying, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The question I asked myself this week in my study is, why did God design salvation in this way? There are many reasons, but Paul actually answers part of it in that same context. Read on in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is always uh, that passage you want to have earmarked for when you're feeling really good about yourself. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's the, here's the thing. We You will boast in the presence of God, but it's a matter of what are you boasting about? God, I made it. Look at me. I'm here. Or God, your grace brought me here. All your grace. What is the content, the substance, and the essence of your boasting this morning? In relationship to this very subject, uh, the late commentator Warren Wearsby once wrote, and this is sort of uh, turning to our application here this morning. There is no greater need, he writes, in the churches today than for us to examine the motivations behind our very ministries. This is why I think this passage came to my mind for this Sunday, our annual meeting Sunday. It's not just that we should consider what we are doing as a ministry, but why we are doing what we're doing as a ministry. Things have been hard of late, but they have been going relatively well here. What is the object of our boasting? Our success, our building project, our uh, new people being baptized, new people coming in, or is it merely and simply and solely the cross of Christ? May it always be the cross of Christ. The great hymn, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Listen. Maybe you would join me in saying this year, forbid it, Lord, that I would boast in my Bible reading. Not comparing your Bible reading with somebody else. Oh, you haven't spent any time in God's Word. I'm better a Christian than you are. Forbid it, Lord. But it's so easy for us to do that. Or perhaps, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast in my parenting. Look at how well my children have turned out. That's just another expression of self-righteousness. Rather, we should say, thanks be to God. And despite what I've done, that our children are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or perhaps, far be it, Lord, that I should boast in my church attendance. Where have you been? No, none of those things. Far be it, Lord, that I should boast in how many people I have led to faith in Jesus Christ in the last year, the last five years, the last ten years. Or for us, corporately, far be it, Lord, that we should boast in budgets, in baptisms, or in new buildings but only and always in one thing, in the cross of Christ alone. Remember our big idea this morning. As Christians, 
We must never permit ourselves to boast in anything other than what God in Christ has enabled or empowered us to do by sheer grace. Not me, but thee, O God. Not I, but Christ in me. Look, for Paul and for all faithful disciples then, non-boasting is not an option. We better boast. We ought to boast. There's a blessed boast, but it's a boast only in the cross. All human beings are hardwired to worship. Human beings will boast about something. Praise is mandatory. It's in our very DNA. But the curious question is, where are we boasting today? Of whom or about what will you boast today? Paul says, essentially for me, however, unlike these false teachers and my opponents who put confidence in mere flesh, in their own works, who seek to brag about their influence over others and control what you do, for me, may it never be that I boast except in the cross of Jesus. Paul understood something quite ironic, that the very symbol of dread and death in the Roman society, that is what a Roman cross was, was and would be the emblem of life and hope and joy for the Christian and for the church. There's a great scandal in our salvation that God would use a cross to redeem a race The cross of Christ alone was the means of your and my rescue, Galatians 1 verse 4. The means of our redemption, Galatians 4 verse 5. The means for our path of life, Galatians 2 verse 20. The means and sole object of our boasting, Galatians 6 verses 14 and 15. For Paul, the cross meant death to the world, but life to God by the Spirit. It brought liberty to the soul and freedom from the tyranny of the flesh and deliverance from the evil domain of the world. And it brought true hope. In fact, as you read through Galatians, it's very clear that Paul could not keep the cross or being crucified off of his mind. He says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives within me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says in Galatians 5, verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says in Galatians 6, verse 14, But far be it from me that I should boast in anything other than the cross of Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Stauruo, the crucified, crooks or cross. Commentator David Guzik states helpfully, for people who knew what crucifixion was all about, the words cross and glory simply did not go together. They were, in fact, direct opposites because there was not a more humiliating or shameful way to be executed than by a Roman cross. It seemed much more logical to glory in your own good showing in the flesh instead of the glory of the cross. Charles Spurgeon said that Paul, of course, cared nothing for the particular piece of wood to which those blessed hands and feet were nailed, for that was mere materialism and has perished out of mind, but rather he means the glorious doctrine of justification by faith 
Free justification through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, And you, church, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God has made us together alive in Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That symbol of contempt, that emblem of certain death has become a source of eternal life for you and for me. There is no other boast. There is no other place than in the cross of Jesus Christ for us to rejoice in. That's why Isaac Watts wrote the beautiful words to a great hymn of our faith. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And I pour contempt on all my pride. He says, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things, and there are many vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. I ask as I wrap up this morning, what do you really see? And maybe even what do you feel? When you look at the cross of Jesus. Does that old rugged cross have a wondrous attraction. For you still this morning. Or perhaps for like so many. Are you put off by that grace soaked in blood stained piece of wood. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones the great Welsh preacher. Called the react, one's reaction to this very question. The acid test of our faith. What you think of when you think of the cross is the acid test of your faith. Does the thought of Jesus' cross revolt you or cause you to rejoice in God's goodness? Do you say when you consider the cross, how could a good and loving God do that to His Son? Who are you to tell me that my sin deserved that sort of punishment and wrath? Or do you say, oh, how sweet the blood of Jesus that covers the sin of a wretch like myself. Oh, how I love that old cross where the dearest and blessed for a world of lost sinners like me was slain. How do you respond to the cross this morning? To the non-Christian, today the cross is simply an offense. Tim Keller rightly said the gospel is offensive. To liberal-minded people who charge the gospel with intolerance because it states that the only way to be saved is by the cross. And yet the gospel is also offensive to the conservative-minded people because it states that without the cross, good people are in as much trouble as bad people are. Ultimately, he concludes, the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. See, the cross tells us something about people. It tells us we are rotten and we are ruined. 
But the cross also tells us something about God. It tells us He is merciful, and He is holy, and He redeems rotten people. To the non-Christian, the cross is an offense, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. To those of us who by God's grace and through the gift of repentance and faith in Christ, who have come to love the cross of Christ like Paul, we place all of our boasting this morning. We anchor it in the bedrock of the boast of the cross. We acknowledge before the world that because of Christ's cross, we are forgiven and we are at peace with Almighty God. All the isms of this world can't touch us. They have no power over us. There's no ultimate authority in them for us, but rather our ultimate authority is in the one who died and was buried and rose again on the third day. We boast in his blood. We boast in Jesus. A contemporary hymn says that I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. Therefore, I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. Let's bow in prayer this morning. Again, O Lord and Father, we thank you for your holy and righteous and inerrant and altogether trustworthy word. We thank you, Father, for the Son, Jesus Christ, who is revealed in the pages of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the work of redemption that he has perfectly and fully done for us. We thank you for the gift of his Spirit who comes to convict the world in sin and unrighteousness and comes to console us uh, who are found by faith in him. The gift of the Spirit who leads us to subdue all rebel boasts and only boast in the cross of Jesus. Oh Lord, give us each grace to apply and obey what you have declared to us this morning as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.